Preface of Goblins and Pagodas by John Gould Fletcher. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nemo. Goblins and Pagodas by John Gould Fletcher. Preface. One. The second half of the nineteenth and the first fifteen years of the twentieth century have been a period of research, of experiment, of unrest and questioning. In science and philosophy, we have witnessed an attempt to destroy the mechanistic theory of the universe as developed by Darwin, Huxley, and Spencer. The unknowable has been questioned. Hypotheses have been shaken. Vitalism and idealism have been proclaimed. In the arts, the tendency has been to strip each art of its inessentials and to disclose the underlying basis of pure form. In life, the principles of nationality, of racial culture, of individualism, of social development, of Christian ethics, have been discussed, debated, and examined from top to bottom, until at last, in the early years of the twentieth century, we find all Europe, from the leaders of thought down to the lowest peasantry, engaged in a mutually destructive war, of which few can trace the beginnings, and none can foresee the end. The fundamental tenets of thought, art, life itself, have been shaken, and either civilization is destined to some new birth, or mankind will revert to the conditions of life, thought, and social intercourse that prevailed in the Stone Age. Like all men of my generation, I have not been able to resist this irresistible upheaval of ideas and of forces, and, to the best of my ability, I have tried to arrive at a clear understanding of the fundamentals of aesthetic form as they affect the art to which I have felt myself instinctively akin, the art of poetry. That I have completely attained such an understanding, it would be idle for me to pretend but I believe, and have induced some others to believe, that I have made a few steps toward it. Some explanation of my own peculiar theories and beliefs is necessary. However, to those who have not specifically concerned themselves with poetry, or who suffer in the presence of any new work of art from the normal human reaction, that all art principles are so essentially fixed that any departure from accepted ideas is madness. 2. The fundamental basis of all the arts is the same. In every case, art aims at the evocation of some human emotion in the spectator or listener. Where science proceeds from effects to causes, and seeks to analyze the underlying causes of emotion and sensation, art reverses the process. 
and constructs something that will awaken emotions according to the amount of receptiveness with which other people approach it thus architecture gives us feelings of density proportion harmony sculpture of masses in movement painting of color harmony and the ordered composition of lines and volumes from which arise sensations of space music of the development of sounds into melodic line harmonic progression tonal opposition and symphonic structure the object of literature is not dissimilar from these literature aims at releasing the emotions that arise from the formed words of a certain language but literature is probably a less pure and hence more universal art than any i have yet examined for it must be apparent to all minds that not only is a word a definite symbol of some fact but also it is a thing capable of being spoken or sounded the art of literature then in so far as it deals with definite statements is akin to painting or photography in so far as it deals with sounded words it is akin to music three literature therefore does not depend on the peculiar twist and quirks which represent to those who can read the words but rather on the essential words themselves in fact literature existed before writing and writing in itself is of no value from the purely literary sense except in so far as it preserves and transmits from generation to generation the literary emotion style whether in prose or poetry is an attempt to develop this essentially musical quality of literature to evoke the magic that exists in the sound quality of words as well as to combine these sound qualities in definite statements or sentences the difference between prose and poetry is therefore not a difference of means but of psychological effect and reaction the means employed the formed language is the same but the resultant impression is quite different in prose the emotions expressed are those that are capable of development in a straight line in so far as prose is pure it confines itself to the direct orderly progression of a thought or conception or situation from point to point of a flat surface the sentences as they develop this conception from its beginning to conclusion move on and do not return upon themselves the grouping of these sentences into paragraphs gives the breadth of the thought the paragraphs sections and chapters are each a square in that they represent a division of the main thought into parallel units or blocks of subsidiary ideas the sensation of depth is finally obtained by arranging these blocks in a rising climactic progression or in parallel lines or in a sort of zigzag figure 
the psychological reaction that arises from the intelligent appreciation of poetry is quite different in poetry we have a succession of curves the direction of the thought is not in straight lines but wavy and spiral it rises and falls on gust of strong emotion most often it creates strongly marked loops and circles the structure of the stanza or strophe always tends to be spherical depth is obtained by making one sphere contain a number of concentric or overlapping spheres hence when we speak of poetry we usually mean regular rhyme and meter which have for so long been considered essential to all poetry not as a device for heightening musical effect as so many people suppose but merely to make these loops and circles more accentuated and to make the line of the poem turn upon itself more recognizably but it must be recognized that just as giotto's circle was none the less a circle although not drawn with compasses so poetic circles can be constructed out of subtler and more musical curves than that which painstakingly follows the self-same progression of beats and catches itself up on the same point of rhyme for line after line the key pattern on the lip of a greek vase may be beautiful but it is less beautiful less satisfying and less conclusive a test of artistic ability than the composition of satyrs and of menads struggling about the center therefore i maintain and will continue to do so that the mere craftsman ability to write in regular lines and meters no more makes a man a poet than the ability to stencil wallpapers makes him a painter rather it is more important to observe that almost any prose work of imaginative literature if examined closely will be found to contain a plentiful sprinkling of excellent verses while many poems which the world hails as masterpieces contain whole pages of prose the fact is that prose and poetry are to literature as composition and color are to painting or as light and shadow to the day or male and female to mankind there are no absolutely perfect poets and no absolutely perfect prose writers each partakes of some of the characteristics of the other the difference between poetry and prose is therefore a difference between a general roundness and a general squareness of outline a great french critic recently dead who devoted perhaps the major part of his life to the study of the aesthetics of the french tongue declared that flaubert and chateaubriand wrote only poetry if there are those who cannot see that in the only true and lasting sense of the word poetry this remark was perfectly just then all i have written above will be in vain four along with the prevailing preoccupation with technique which so marks the early twentieth century there has gone also a great change in the subject matter of art having tried to explain the aesthetic form basis of poetry 
I shall now attempt to explain my personal way of viewing its content. It is a significant fact that every change in technical procedure in the arts is accompanied by, and grows out of, a change in subject matter. To take only one out of innumerable examples, the new subject matter of Wagner's music dramas, of an immeasurably higher order than the usual libretto, created a new form of music, based on motifs, not melodies. Other examples can easily be discovered. The reason for this is not difficult to find. No sincere artist cares to handle subject matter that has already been handled and exhausted. It is not a question of a desire to avoid plagiarism, or of self-conscious searching for novelty, but of a perfectly spontaneous and normal appeal which any new subject matter always makes. Hence, when a new subject appears to any artist, he always realizes it more vividly than an old one. And if he is a good artist, he realizes it so vividly that he recreates it in what is practically a novel form. This novel form never is altogether novel, nor is the subject altogether a new subject. For, as I pointed out at the beginning of this preface, that all arts sprang practically out of the same primary sensations. So the subject matter of all art must forever be the same, namely, nature in human life. Hence, any new type of art will always be found, in subject matter as well as in technique, to have its roots in the old. Art is like a kaleidoscope, capable of many changes, while the material which builds up those changes remains the same. Nevertheless, although the subject matter in this book is not altogether new, yet I have realized it in a way which has not often been tried. And out of that fresh and quite personal realization have sprung my innovation in subject as well as technique. Let me illustrate by a concrete example. 5. A book lies on my desk. It has a red binding and is badly printed on cheap paper. I have had this book with me for several years. Now, suppose I were to write a poem on this book. How would I treat the subject? If I were a poet following in the main the Victorian tradition, I should write my poem altogether about the contents of this book and its author. My poem would be essentially a criticism of the subject matter of the book. I should state at length how that subject matter had affected me. In short, what the reader would obtain from this sort of poem would be my sentimental reaction towards certain ideas and tendencies in the work of another. If I were a realist poet, I should write about the book's external appearance. I should expatiate on the red binding, the bad type, the ink stain on page 16. I should complain, perhaps, of my poverty at not being able to buy a better edition, and conclude 
with a jibe at the author for not having realized the sufferings of the poor. Neither of these ways, however, of writing about this book possesses any novelty, and neither is essentially my own way. My own way of writing about it would be as follows. I should select out of my life the important events connected with my ownership of this book, and strive to write of them in terms of the volume itself, both his regard subject matter and appearance. In other words, I should link up my personality and the personality of the book, and make each a part of the other. In this way I should strive to evoke a soul out of this piece of inanimate matter, a something characteristic and structural inherent in this inorganic form, which is friendly to me and responds to my mood. This method is not new, although it has not often been used in Occidental countries. Professor Fenoloso, in his book on Chinese and Japanese art, states that it was universally employed by the Chinese artists and poets of the Song period in the 11th century AD. He calls this doctrine of the interdependence of man and inanimate nature the cardinal doctrine of Zen Buddhism. The Zen Buddhists evolved it from the still earlier Taoist philosophy, which undoubtedly inspired Li Po and the other great Chinese poets of the 7th and 8th centuries A.D. 6. In the first poems of this volume, The Ghost of an Old House, I have followed the method already described. I have tried to evoke, out of the furniture and surroundings of a certain old house, definite emotions which I have had concerning them. I have tried to relate my childish terror concerning this house, a terror not uncommon among children, as I can testify, to the aspects that called it forth. In the symphonies, which form the second part of this volume, I have gone a step further. My aim in writing these was, from the beginning, to narrate certain important phases of the emotional and intellectual development, in short, the life of an artist. Not necessarily myself, but of that sort of artist with which I might find myself most in sympathy. And here, not being restrained by any definite material phenomena, as in the old house, I have tried to state each phase in the terms of a certain color, or combination of colors, which is emotionally akin to that phase. This color, and the imaginative phantasmagoria of landscape which it evokes, thereby creates, in a definite and tangible form, the dominant mood of each poem. The emotional relations that exist between form, color, and sound have been little investigated. It is perfectly true that certain colors affect certain temperaments differently, but it is also true that there is a science of color, and that certain of its laws are already universally known, if not explained. Naturally enough, it is to the painters 
we must first turn if we want to find out what is known about color we discover that painters continually are speaking of hot and cold color red yellow orange being generally hot and green blue and violet cold mixed colors being classed hot and cold according to the proportions they contain of the hot and cold colors we also discover that certain colors will not fit certain forms but rebel at the combination this is so far true that scarcely any landscape painter finishes his picture from nature but in the studio and almost any art student painting a landscape will disregard the color before him and employ the color scheme of his master or of some painter he admires as delacroix noted in his journal a conception having become a composition must move in the milieu of a color peculiar to it there seems to be a particular tone belonging to some part of every picture which is a key that governs all the other tones therefore we must admit that there is an intimate relation between color and form it is the same with color and sounds many musicians have observed the phenomenon that when certain notes or combinations of them are sounded certain colors are also suggested to the eye a russian composer Skriabin, went so far as to construct color scales and an english scientist professor wallace remington has built an organ which plays in colors instead of notes unfortunately the musicians have given this subject less attention than the painters and therefore our knowledge concerning the relations of color and sound is more fragmentary and incomplete nevertheless these relations exist and it is for the future to develop them more fully literature and especially poetry as i have already pointed out partakes of the character of both painting and music the impressionist method is quite as applicable to writing as it is to landscape poems can be written in major or minor keys can be as full of dominant motif as a wagner music drama and even susceptible of fugal treatment literature is the common ground of many arts and in its highest development such as the drama as practiced in fifth century athens is found allied to music dancing and color hence i have called my works symphonies when they are really dramas of the soul and hence in them i have used color for verity for ornament for drama for its inherent beauty and for intensifying the form of the emotion that each of these poems is intended to evoke seven let us take an artist a young man at the outset of his career his years of searching of fumbling of other men's influence are coming to an end sure of himself he yet sees that he will spend all his life pursuing a vision of beauty 
which will elude him at the very last. This is the first symphony, which I have called the blue, because blue suggests to me depth, mystery, and distance. He finds himself alone in a great city, surrounded by noise and clamor. It is as if millions of lives were tugging at him, drawing him away from his art, tempting him to go out and whelm his personality in this black whirlpool of struggle and failure, on which float golden specks, the illusory bliss of life. But he sees that all this is only another illusion, like his own. Here we have the symphony in black and gold. He emerges from the city, and in the country is re-intoxicated with desire for life by spring. He vows himself to a self-sufficing pagan worship of nature. This is the green symphony. Quickened by spring, he dreams of a marvelous golden city of art, full of fellow workers. This city appears to him at times, like some Italian town of the Renaissance, at others like some strange oriental golden-roofed monastery temple. He sees himself dead in the desert, far away from it. Yet its blossoming is ever about him. Something divine has been born of him after death. So he passes to the White Symphony, the central poem of this series in which I have sought to describe the artist's struggle to attain unutterable and superhuman perfection. The struggle goes on from the midsummer of his life to midwinter. The end of it is stated in the poem. There follows a brief interlude, which I have called a symphony in white and blue. These colors were chosen, perhaps, more idiosyncratically in this case than in the others. I've tried to depict the sort of temptation that besets most artists at this stage of their career, the temptation to abandon the struggle for the sake of a purely sensual existence. In this case, however, the appeal of sensuality is conveyed under the guise of a dream. It is resisted, and the struggle begins anew. War breaks out, not alone in the external world, but in the artist's soul. He finds he must follow his personality wherever it leads him, despite all obstacles. This is the Orange Symphony. Now follow long years of struggle and neglect. He is shipwrecked, and still afar he sees his city of art. But this time... It is red, a phantom mocking his impotent rage. Old age follows. All is violet, the color of regret and remembrance. He is living only in the past, his life a succession of dreams. Lastly, all things fade out into absolute gray, and it is now midwinter. Looking forth on the world again, he still sees war, like a monstrous red flower dominating mankind. He hears the souls of the dead declaring that they, too, have died for an adventure, even as he 
is about to die. Such, in the briefest possible analysis, is the meaning of the poems contained in this book. January 1916 End of Preface